Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Hello, everybody. It's me, Matt Rogers. Welcome to the, oh my gosh, season finale of HBO Max Movie Club Season 2. What a time we've had. I could sing a vitamin C song about it. Seriously, as we go on, we remember all the times we spent together. I'm famously not allowed to sing on this podcast because then we'd have to pay for the rights. But you can just type those lyrics into Google and you can see the iconic vitamin C song that I'm referencing. And the reason I'm doing so is because I have just loved hosting this season and I couldn't think of a better movie to cap things off with than Batman Returns, especially at this time of year, because guess what? This is full on a Christmas movie, which is a sequel to the film Batman. This was Tim Burton's opportunity to really get Tim Burton with the franchise. Released on June 19th, 1992 and directed by Burton, like I said, this movie was written by Daniel Waters with help from Wesley Strick, and it was a huge, huge success following the already huge success of Batman. This broke several box office records, earning $266.8 million worldwide. It failed to replicate the success of Batman, which made $411.6 million, but the thing is, this was a much bigger swing. Tonally and aesthetically, this was a lot darker. This was much more of a Tim Burton film than the first Batman, which even he, the man himself, said he felt was a little bit boring. And I think, honestly, with unbiased eyes looking back, this is really the iconic of the two. With a budget of $80 million, this was very profitable. It was filmed on the Warner Brothers lot here in LA and took over seven sound stages to recreate Gotham. Over $100 million was spent on marketing, $20 million by Warner Brothers for commercials and trailers, and $60 million by merchandising partners McDonald's, Ralston Purina, Kmart, Target, Venture Stores, and Sears. They hosted about 300 Batman shops in stores. Now, it's a little bit weird that McDonald's was making toys about this Batman Returns film because it really is super dark. The Penguin himself is just such a grotesque creature that this had to be something that when parents brought their kids into the theaters, they were like, huh, what have I done? Am I traumatizing my child? But we're going to get into that idea with our guests a little bit later. Critics were polarized by many aspects of Batman Returns, but Michelle Pfeiffer's performance as Catwoman received near-unanimous praise. It's got an 81% on Rotten Tomatoes, which is pretty great, but largely that is because, I mean, Michelle Pfeiffer here, if you ask any gay man, turns in one of the most iconic villain performances of all time. The cast is as follows. Michael Keatman comes back as Batman. Michelle Pfeiffer, like I said, plays Catwoman. Danny DeVito is iconic as the Penguin. And the real villain of this movie, Max Shrek, is portrayed by Christopher Walken. So the plot goes a little bit something like this. And this was a little bit of a different Batman movie because... Weirdly enough, the protagonist isn't really Batman. This movie starts and ends on the villains. So at the beginning of the movie, we see wealthy parents. They 
reveal their child out of their little bassinet and they look down and they're like, oh my God, this kid is absolutely deformed and he's a little violent tiny baby. This is the penguin, as we'll come to find out. And what do they do? Do they raise him and care for him with love? No, mama. They throw him off a bridge into a frozen river. He rolls down the river and is adopted by a family of penguins and they raise him. Okay? So fast forward 33 years and Gotham City is preparing for Christmas. Max Shrek, played by Christopher Walken, is a local celebrity who secretly owns a corrupt business. He is making a speech and basically a gang of circus performers just bum rush him and try to kidnap him. They're successful and it's real it's 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 revealed to Max that Penguin is running this operation. The the operation is sort of, you know, it's existing to sort of wreak havoc on Gotham because Danny DeVito as the Penguin basically wants revenge on a city and a wealthy class that threw him away. Cut to Max Shrek's secretary, Selena Kyle. She's single. She's trying to make it work in the big city. And she works for this kind of asshole of a boss who's just kind of been told by the Penguin, like, you have to reintroduce me to society at any cost. Like, I want to be given a platform in society so that I can re-enter so that he eventually can wreak havoc on the city. Basically, Selena Kyle is sort of busying herself around the office. And it comes to her attention that... Not only is this shit going down, but there's also other dark stuff going on. Max Shrek is crooked, and he wants to siphon the energy from the city so that he can control it himself. What you need to know is that Max Shrek is not necessarily down with the fact that Selena Kyle is digging through his stuff and figuring out his nefarious plans, so he pushes her out a damn window. I don't know how scientifically sound this movie is, but she is brought back to life by cats, makes an iconic Catwoman costume, and sort of becomes a dark vigilante in her own right. Meanwhile, Batman's there too. Listen, this is just how you set up the movie. You gotta watch it. It's streaming now on HBO Max if you can believe it, but it's really, really great, and it's really a villain movie, which I love. There's a lot of great intense scenes between Michelle Pfeiffer and Michael Keaton as Batman, and it's just, it's one of those great classic iconic films, probably because Tim Burton gave it a style all its own. I am so excited to get into this movie with one of the smartest people around to talk about pop culture, movies, anything, television. Like, if you're listening to this podcast, Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, you know all about Danny Pellegrino and how great he is, how charming, how wonderful, how funny. And he also has an iconic book out, not to overuse the term, but it's called How Do I Unremember This? And you can go get that book now. I couldn't have asked for anyone better to dig in all things Batman Returns and, let's face it, Michelle Pfeiffer (laughs) than this person. Everyone, here's Danny Pellegrino on the HBO Max Movie Club with me, Matt Rogers, right now. Okay, so Danny Pellegrino is with us. Danny, hello. And this is the, I don't want to say the reason you're here is because I wanted to get someone who could equally sort of like queen out with me about Michelle Pfeiffer exclusively in this movie, but take the floor and explain to everyone why you might be a good prospect for that. Well, first of all, I love this movie so much. We're going to be talking about Batman Returns, and I think it's one of the greatest and weirdest, strangest movies that was ever made. I don't think it could be made today. Unfortunately, I wish something like this could. Mm -hmm. I'm wearing my Michelle Pfeiffer Catwoman shirt. Hell here. Honestly, that that really is iconic. Have you had that for years? 
I've had this for years. Yeah, I love this mm-hmm. movie. So when when you guys reached out about doing this specifically, I was so excited because I have a podcast where I cover a lot of pop culture, reality TV stuff, but yeah. I don't always get to dive into something like Batman Returns. And I am obsessed with this movie and I have been since I was a kid. And yeah, well, we were doing a Batman episode and there was no question that it would be Batman Returns because I think it's also the queerest one. And like you said, it is the darkest, weirdest. And I think it has the most committed performances. Yeah, it's so weird. I rewatched it last night and Mm -hmm. it's something that there's a scene, the shirt that I'm wearing is like the hell here where Michelle Pfeiffer's character makes her Catwoman costume. And it's so, the whole movie's dark, but that scene in particular, I think is so well shot, so well lit. There's a Mm -hmm. moment where she knocks over the lamp as she's spray painting her dollhouse black and creating this legendary costume. And the lighting switches very subtly when the light falls to the floor. And it's just so brilliantly shot, not to mention the music. I think it's Danny Elfman's best yes. work. That that specific scene is stunning. I wrote a college paper about the music in that scene. Did you? So I did, yeah. Well, yeah. Did, you rec- did you say how it recalled kind of cats mewing and screaming in the background? Like the meow. Yeah, there's like a cat a cat motif in the background of it. It And it's so haunting and beautiful. And Mm -hmm. I, that's one of those scores when I'm writing something, I'll listen to this score because I just- To set mood and tone. Yeah. Exactly. You know what I love is that it's unmistakably a Tim Burton movie in the way that the first Batman just was not. Whether or not it was because he was not feeling confident enough to make those choices or- You know, like it was just he was given more freedom. And in my research on the movie, I did I sort of gleaned that the studio was like, you know what? Make a Tim Burton movie this time. We actually want like more of a black and white take on this that's darker and more you than what you've done. Because the first Batman movie, I mean, let's be honest, it's a little without color. It's sort of like the most exciting thing about it is probably Jack Nicholson as the Joker. But there's just so much more to explore when you have this type of director and this type of material who seem to match it so well. So to watch him like go for it, especially in that scene you mentioned, like when she first opens the door and she stands in silhouette at the door and like just the way her hair is shaped, the way that her costuming is, the cut to when the light flicks on and you see like the little bit of blood on her face, the deadpan, oh, I forgot I'm not married. You know, it's just there's this really dark humor at the core of it. And what I love about that scene too is her performances so big. Like, remember when she throws the phone off the table? Her arms kind of go up like this and like she like twists and contorts her body and like leaves the frame, but it feels perfectly in tone with what's happening in a way where I just love to watch an actor and a director so on the same page. And Michelle Pfeiffer, who knew, but really natural in this type of Tim Burton film. I love that scene. Yeah, the way she struts when she's punching out the two letters of that hello there sign. Yes. And it's like this very slow morph into the cat woman. And Mm -hmm. it's one of the few times you see her acting as cat woman when she's still in the sort of Selena Kyle uh, look. So she hasn't put on the costume yet and she's slowly transforming. She's in process. She's in process, but it's so fucking good. And I, did you love it when you first saw it as a kid? Like, did you- I was very afraid of it. I mean, that's yeah, the thing is yeah. like, I, I think that the, that's another thing about the movie is it's 
truly grotesque. I mean, there's parts of it that are seared images in my brain from when I was younger. Like, for example, at the very end of the movie when um, Danny DeVito as Oswald Cobblepot, a.k.a. the Penguin, who we'll get into her, um, when she emerges from the the water at the end and her, and her I'm like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. gendering we the Penguin it. as a woman because she's a villain in a Batman <laughs> film and I want ladies. Um, we'll get into Poison Ivy a little bit later, too. We'll just touch Please. on her. But um, when he comes out of the water and his nose is just gushing blood like you think yeah. oh this is a movie anyone can watch it's a comic book movie but really this was i think the first real turn into dark batman and i wish that these days whenever we went dark batman which it seems like we're there we can't get out of that sphere we don't do camp we don't do we don't embrace the silliness like i think there's a way to be darker and embrace the silliness and the edginess like this movie does and i wish we could see more of it well, it it feels so revolutionary to watch this movie back because nowadays there's so many superhero movies, particularly in the Marvel Universe, which they all have their merits, and I'm not knocking right. any of them. But I think it's fascinating that Batman Returns is so clearly, like you mentioned, a Tim Burton movie. Stylist. Whereas now I don't feel like you can watch it and see uh, whoever the filmmaker is as much. You might see little flourishes of James Gunn or whoever's Taika. Yeah. yeah. You see flourishes, but it's not as in your face. And it's so funny to look at the history of this movie and how they had McDonald's toys. And I, you're right. Mm. I was so scared when the penguin character was eating the fish when he's oh, like, horrible. he takes that. And I remember seeing it as a kid and having to fast forward. And I, I got the VHS taper recorded this off of TV when I was a kid. Mm. And I would always fast forward to the Michelle Pfeiffer stuff because the penguin stuff did terrify me as a kid. It's very unsettling. Have you ever seen those shots? I don't. They're not paparazzi shots, but they're like behind the scenes photos of Danny DeVito as the Penguin getting like makeup put on him. They're oh so God. funny to me because it's just such a jarring image because he is, you buy into that performance so much when you're watching it. And he is the Penguin and scary and weird and all these things. Yeah. And to see someone putting makeup on and he's just sitting there on set is so jarring. Yeah, just being an actor. That's the thing too I always I always forget is it's just like when a performance is so committed to like the like the villain antagonist performances in this movie like you you think of them like sitting in their chairs like having their coffee in between and I'm like what are they talking about in costume <laughs> as the penguin and catwoman you know what I mean like and also just the idea that she had to be in that costume at all times had to be completely insane and then there's of course the urban legend I don't know if it's true maybe you can confirm that she had to be sewn into the costume daily. I did hear that, and I think it was supposed to be Annette Benning was was yes. cast in the role, and then she got pregnant or something like that. You know, the biggest crime to me in this new era of superheroes where they're finally starting to embrace the multiverses and bringing these characters back, and Michael Keaton's filmed for different movies as Batman again. Mm. And the fact that nobody has tapped yet Michelle Pfeiffer to return as Catwoman is just like, the most disgusting thing I can think of. Like, it, she is, to me, the most memorable uh, comic book performance of all time, let alone from that era of the 90s. Yeah. And I loved Michael Keaton as Batman, but to me, there was so much untapped potential with that character, and she's so magnetic, and yeah. I think that was largely the critiques of the movie was that it became a villain movie instead of a Batman movie because people were so invested in in these villains. And so I yeah. can't imagine why they haven't done that yet. Well, the thing about Batman that I think is difficult is they reboot it so many times and therefore you have to make Batman as a protagonist an interesting character again and again and again and again. I think the fact that Michelle Pfeiffer is so magnetic 
like obviously helps. Did you hear that she was originally like cast as Vicky Vale in the first one, but Michael Keaton was like, no, um, we used to date and it's going to be awkward. No, I did not know this. So that's why they brought Kim in. So this is tea that I found out. There was a 2019 article about the making of Batman Returns on the Hollywood Reporter. In my research last night, I found this. Okay, so what happened was they were trying to cast Vicky Vale, and a lot of people at the studio wanted Michelle Pfeiffer. And I guess Michael Keaton was trying to get back with his ex-wife at the time, and he was like, it can't be Michelle Pfeiffer. It'll be too distracting. I'm trying to get back with my wife. Michelle Pfeiffer and I dated and broke up, and it's just not the situation I need on set right now. And I guess enough changed in the few years between Batman or Batman Returns, or maybe they were just that desperate because they kept losing actresses and like people kept not working out. Um, we can get into the Sean Young of it all, but uh, she, eventually she's cast in the role and they're so iconic together and she brings him to life so much. Like, I don't think there's a better scene in this movie than them dancing at, at, at the end when they realize in the same moment that their alter egos are who they are. You know, that is a really yeah. well acted, suspenseful, tense moment. I think you're right. And the acting of it is so incredible, particularly in that scene. And nowadays, I think it's more acceptable for somebody to be nominated for Academy Award for a, a, a superhero movie. But I truly believe that she deserved to be nominated for this oh, performance because it was so good. The success of the movie relies on a performance like that. And so when a movie on that scale is that successful, I would think as someone in the entertainment industry that was voting for an award like that, I would want to recognize something like that because you know the risk that it takes. Also, like, there's probably a lot going on here in terms of like demographics of the Academy, probably very largely male. It's a very sexualized character. It is a comic book movie. They probably just didn't take it seriously. Meanwhile, the degree of difficulty is, I would imagine, much higher than probably a couple of the performances that were nominated. I don't have them in front of me, but... Yeah, because it's so emotional in scenes like that dance scene, which also has one of the best songs ever face-to-face playing in the background as Mm -hmm. they're dancing, but it's also so physical. I mean, she really is learned to use the whip, and she she did things that I think should have been recognized. Wait, can we go back to the Sean Young of it all, please? Yes, okay, so <laughs> if, if, listeners at home, if you don't know, th- there was an actress, Sean Young, who was really lobbying hard for the part, and I guess hard. this is another part of the Vicky Vale of it all. So she was also originally cast as Vicky Vale, and then she couldn't do it because I believe she had a horseback riding accident. So Sean Young is cast in the role. It's Vicky Vale. You know, it's very much like the girl in the Batman movie. It's not a big part. But nevertheless, like she's cast in it and she gets thrown from a horse, can't do it. She's recast by Kim Basinger. So then a few years later, they're casting Batman Returns and every actress in town obviously wants a crack at this part of uh, Catwoman. So Sean Young, thinking this will charm him, shows up <laughs> in full Catwoman costume to the Warner Brothers lot in character and like is stalking the property. And they're like, ma'am, you have to go. And so <laughs> then like footage of it was released to the press and it played on television. And honestly, her career was never really the same after that because everyone thought, oh my God, mama is crazy. But then looking back, it's like, Honestly, if Joaquin Phoenix does that now, if Jared Leto does that now, he celebrated. They already give him the Oscar and send him on his way. I cry sexism. What you're saying is it was iconic behavior. I'm saying it was iconic behavior, too iconic for the time, unfortunately. (laughs) Ahead of its time, Sean Young was. Yes. Yeah. And I wonder, 
I actually feel like maybe I'm making this up. I feel like somebody did cast her as like a voice of Catwoman or something. Maybe I'm making I, that up. You might be right. I, I think that her her um her relationship with the franchise did not end there. I mean, <laughs> clearly she's taken up a lot of real estate on this podcast already. But I, it's kind of unfortunate though because I really don't know anything that else that she's in. And I would I would imagine that she was sort of a major actress at the time, being in consideration for this part, and in fact cast in the previous one. But um, yeah, I think I saw an interview with her like a few years ago where she was like, I was. Burned in Hollywood after that. Like, so much for making a choice. I love that. Uh, can we talk about the Christmas of it all, too? Because I'm a holiday junkie. <laughs> it's a junkie, Christmas but, movie. But the fact that this is a Christmas movie is so fascinating to me. I love because it. There's, it's just such a dark film, but then it's it's lit by twinkle lights, too. Yeah. And that, that that's another thing I really like, is you can tell that Tim Burton has, like this thing with Christmas where he's like, oh, fuck this. But like, you know, it's like, it's like the gross pomp of it all. You know what I mean? It's sort of like that thing where it's all very indulgent. And I almost feel like that's also a comment that the movie is making, like the excess of it all, the separation between the very rich and the very poor, the very powerful and the very not set during this commercial time of Christmas and the sort of gross pageantry of it all, I know like turns him on. Yeah, totally. Um, can I tell you a quick behind-the-scenes story? So I had dinner with the woman who played the ice princess in this Okay, movie. we have to get into her. How did, we, how did you have dinner with her? How did this happen? I know. So my friend is is really good friends with her for years. Like they're, And so we went. We did a birthday dinner. This was pre-COVID. And so I'm sitting next to her. And my friend was like, oh, yeah, this is Christy. You know, she, And I knew that she was this role, but I happened to be sitting next to her. And the whole dinner, of course, that's all I'm thinking about is like, yeah. I want to talk to her about Batman Returns. <laughs> to the ice princess. <laughs> And so by the time I had a few cocktails in me, that's all, of course, I was asking her about. And she was so sweet and lovely, but she was telling me about how uh, her and Michelle were largely the only women on set. Right. And so she was telling me stories just about how good Michelle was. And there's a scene that she was telling me about. It's the scene where the ice princess is tied up and Michelle sort of comes in with the whip. Do you know what I'm talking about? Throws the whip around her and says, girl talk. Yeah, yeah. Gotta go. Girl talk. Ugh. It's so good. It's amazing. And also, you know what I also love about this movie? And not that I love this about the movie, but it it was another thing that, again, I think really shook the audience and, like, shook the kids watching it is the Ice Princess dies. You know what I mean? Like, they don't save her. Like, and not only does she, this is the second, because I guess we could call um, Michelle Pfeiffer's death scene a death scene because her character does die in some form and is revitalized by those cats. By the way, what do you think those cats are doing to her? Are they licking her? Are they biting her back to life? Are they just giving her energy and vibes? That scene really scared me as a kid, too. And I'm allergic to cats, so the idea... I always would look at that scene and I'd be like, there's no way... You couldn't pay me enough money to do that scene because having all those cats just around me licking me... And have you heard about how difficult it is to train a cat? That's a nightmare. Well, you know, probably what happened was they probably, like, gave her little pieces of cat food all over her body. And the cats were probably just, like, going for it, which is, like, again, like, it's a way to get cats to do what you want them to do. But it's not training a cat. They also would be CGI now. I don't feel like they would even use real cats. It would be like, let's CGI all of this. And that's fascinating to me, too, is just the practical effects. I'm I'm like a big nerd when it comes to this thing. I, mm-hmm. I'm i so sick of CGI stuff, and I feel me like too. They ruin more movies. filmmakers, they ruin movies. Practical effects are always better when it comes to costuming, when it comes to these fight scenes. I think that's one of the big complaints with superhero movies now is they all sort of evolve into the CGI glob that you can't even tell what's yeah. going on half the time. Right. And at least in the 90s, it wasn't like that. 
Yeah, and I feel like w- when things are practical, you can buy in emotionally that things are happening in the same space. Like, And also, there's no question about it. But then I guess it has to be like a money thing. I don't know. Well, and even with costuming, I think if you look at something like Jim Carrey's The Grinch, which is, to me, one of the most absurd things that ever happened in mm-hmm. the history of film and TV, but the costuming, there's less of a wall up in between the viewer and the camera and the person yeah. than even when they're doing these things where they have the balls on their face and they- Yeah, they the motion capture. They put the CGI costume on them. And, yeah. and so there's just too much of a disconnect. And I feel like it's hard for the audience to really latch on to them. And so, yeah, maybe Michelle Pfeiffer did have to be sewed into that fucking thing. But thank God for it because we could connect with her. Well, it makes it scarier, too. You know what I mean? It makes it like more unsettling. Like seeing this person who, like, uh, sorry, but obviously is a little uncomfortable, like makes you uncomfortable. Like there's, there is that grotesquery to this. And also, like the stitching on the costume. By the way, she should enter drag race immediately because she would mop the floor with these girls the way that she just like pulled out her sewing machine and was like let me crack this open again and fits a perfect garment to her body like it, the like, girls don't sew like that anymore they just don't they they're very entitled these girls because they hire designers you know what i mean they cut their friend to do it michelle as selena kyle which by the way can we talk about that name selena kyle selena kyle Ooh. If you had to rank Catwoman's, though, so basically, you know, Michelle Pfeiffer is way up here. And then do we give Anne, like, a close second? Because I enjoyed the Anne performance. I was just going to say, I love the uh, I love the Christian Bale Batman movies. I think Anne did phenomenal, especially mm-hmm. having to live up to Michelle was the last person who had done it before her. And I was so surprised and shocked. I don't think the movie's as good. The Dark Knight Rises, no. is that the name of it? Yes. Uh, but I thought Anne was so good. And that was another frustrating thing with that whole franchise. It was like, I wanted Anne to go on. I wanted to see more of that character in another movie or a spinoff or something. And they just ended it. And so I would love Anne to come back. The new one, The Batman, I have not seen. and But I'm sure Zoe was great. I know. And also, like, on face value, when I heard Zoe Kravitz was going to be Catwoman, I'm like, oh, yeah, I totally get that. Like, vibes-wise, I mean, I think she's perfect for it. She's effortlessly cool. She's very physical, you know, and she does have that like intrigue. Whereas Mm -hmm. like, I remember when Anne Hathaway was cast, I was like, okay, is she going to be able to do the, bring the darkness? But then, you know, what performance of hers, I was like, "Mm, like I can see this translating into Catwoman is honestly Rachel getting married. Like there was such darkness there and like isolation and broodiness and like struggle and internal like angst that I was like, I can see Catwoman here. I really can. Like, Batman Returns, I honestly think, is like a reinvention of the wheel in terms of, like, a Batman movie, a superhero movie. And, you know, it obviously sets the tone. And let's get into this a little bit for the movies that follow it, which were Batman Forever and Batman and Robin. Now, here's the thing about these movies. They're, like, critically reviled. But I think they're so much fun because I think they saw the iconography of Michelle Pfeiffer and got Nicole Kidman as, let me just say this name clearly, Dr. Chase Meridian obsessed and like she's giving her veronica lake hair who references catwoman she references her in the movie yes and so basically like what i love about that movie is what it tries to do which is sort of turn into this noir you know what i mean like it it saw batman returns as like this grotesque almost like dark comedy thriller and was like okay, let's commit to a different genre, which is sort of like film noir. And I think it really works with Val Kilmer and Nicole Kidman, et cetera. But 
maybe where they lost the plot a little bit is the villains just got a little too crazy. Like, and it didn't seem like they would work together in the very sort of easy way that it seems like Penguin and Catwoman are able to use each other in their movie. Two-Face and the Riddler, while I think the performances are really fun, and I love Jim Carrey as the Riddler especially, and we love the iconic Sugar and Spice as the as as Two-Face's girls. And, no, and I just, I love all that, but it feels like there was a little bit of, chemically it wasn't working as well, and maybe the dialogue just went a little too... A little too wonky. Wonky and far for a Batman movie. But by the time we get to Batman and Robin 2, we're fully committed to stupid and I'm obsessed. Yeah, look, I was a young kid when these movies came out and I remember seeing Batman Forever and Batman and Robin in theaters and I was obsessed because I think I was the perfect demographic. I was coming of age in a lot of ways. I was like 10 years old. Yeah. But so then by the time Batman and Robin came out, I was coming of age. So I was also figuring out my sexuality and seeing yes. these gorgeous men on screen and Joel Schumacher really sexualized the men's costumes, oh, which in was a, way a very loved. fascinating thing that I, I don't think any filmmaker has really done as much since. To me, they fit into the comics. Um, I don't know if that's making any sense. They look no, like yeah. comics more than I think some of the other ones do. Well, they were designed that way from, from the beginning. So basically, again, I, I, in my research, I, I read an old article and Joel Schumacher, who was directing Batman and Robin, I guess this reporter was on set while he was directing the scene where Schwarzenegger as Mr. Freeze shows up <laughs> at the gala event where where Poison Ivy has just arrived and sort of done her iconic little intro dance. Uma, by the way, is just so, so incredible good. in this so Movie. Okay. I mean, and so he like crashes the party and it's the scene where all his like roller uh, ice skating like henchmen come in. And apparently the the reporter described the scene as it's like all this shit's going on. It's so over the top and crazy. And there's Jules, Joel Schumacher like is on a big chair, like a raised chair <laughs> screaming out before every take. Remember, you're in a cartoon. You're in a cartoon. <laughs> so like they wanted that yeah. vibe and that's the thing is it's like i feel like you have to judge a movie based on its intent and like that movie with that dialogue with all of mr freeze's cheesy one-liners and uma's crazy performance and the close-ups on the butts and the nipples it's like trying to be dumb yeah. you guys it's trying to be camp and therefore like when it succeeds in that and is so over the top i think you have to give it credit I want to ask you something. You mentioned Uma Thurman, and mm -hmm. I think gay people, like, we love that performance as well, almost as much as I'd say Michelle Pfeiffer as Catwoman. But what do you think it is? Because I don't feel like we love the the Arnold Schwarzenegger performance or the George Clooney performance in that movie, but we love the Uma Thurman performance. So why? You know what it is? It, it actually does call back to Michelle Pfeiffer and Batman Returns, like, almost directly, because it's mousy assistant who's murdered by the boss and and is revived by the thing they become. You know what I mean? She becomes a, a wild, like, crazy botanical villain. And it's because she's brought back to life by, like, <laughs> the juices and the chemicals of, like, these, like, plant items. I don't even know what the <laughs> hell is going on. But she becomes plant woman. And I think what happens is there is that thing that you just talked about, which is us realizing we are changing from one thing to another, from a kid to an adult that's realizing their sexuality. And to watch them come alive in their sexuality, I think is in some way like intrinsically very empowering for queer people. To yeah. watch someone be like, no, you know what? You wronged me. I'm coming back and getting you. And I'm going to look absolutely stunning and be iconic. And it also is the commitment you know 
it's just a synergy. It is, it's she, again, just like Michelle, knew what movie she was doing and never questioned it. Whereas a little bit, you can see how dumb George Clooney thinks the movie is in his performance. He's kind of doing it with a rolled eye. Even mm-hmm. Alicia Silverstone, she's kind of just like, feels a little lost. Whereas Uma is galvanized. She is like, yeah. I am here. I am having fun. And I know what this is. I think there's something, too, about what you just said in terms of women's sexualities, particularly in the 90s. I don't think we very often saw on screen women being fully formed in their sexuality and being upfront about their sexuality. And I mean, Uma is kissing men and and taking charge of her sexuality in a way that I don't think was on screen as much. Uh, And same with Michelle Pfeiffer and Batman Return. And what and the thing about Poison Ivy, too, is her sexuality is literally her weapon. And so I think intrinsically, again, for a queer person, they're like, wow, imagine if I was able to use this thing about me and like take the, take the power that I know I have inside me and actually use it to defeat people who have wronged me. You know what I mean? There's something like very sexy and cool and edgy about that that I think, you know, I almost don't want to see Poison Ivy again because I feel like it's been done well. And I don't, the thing I think about these standalone villain movies too, like the Catwoman movie, which I think the Halle Berry one sort of scared anyone off in Hollywood from ever trying that again because I think that it just has a stink on it, is they almost do work better in these supporting capacities because there can be a degree of mystery and therefore a degree of danger and the leave them wanting more of it all. So they are my favorite things about the movie, but I don't think gun to my head, I would want more of them. I think that they're actually fine. And therefore that makes me feel like the end of Batman returns, which iconically ends with, you know, Catwoman appearing in the frame and looking up to the sky (sighs) at the bat signal, signaling that she's survived. I almost like that. We never see her again. Yeah, I still want her. I want her back. And I think there could be something so fascinating about seeing the char- a character like Michelle Pfeiffer's Catwoman as a 60-something woman still yeah. in charge of her sexuality and still being powerful and, and physical. And, and how, does, how does that work? Because I think that's one of the interesting things that's been explored with movies like Logan and Hugh Jackman as like an older aging superhero or, Mm -hmm. or I think that's the direction maybe they're going with Michael Keaton's return. And so I would, I want to see that in a woman because it's so rare. I often talk about housewives on my show because it's fascinating to me. That's one of the few places on TV we see women aging and and still being uh, three dimensional human beings. And so what does that mean for a, a female superhero or someone who's kind of riding that line of villain and hero in their 60s or in their 70s. Like that to me seems like it's such a juicy story. And I'm not sure like a a large superhero audience is really invested in that as I would be or as another gay man would be in a 65-year-old superhero woman. You know who talked about doing that though? Whoopi. Do you remember a few years ago on The View? Like, because I know you're also a The View super fan. Like she mentioned like, she's like, where's the older black woman superhero? And then someone at the table was like, it should be you, whoop. And then the whole audience, of course, applauded. But I was like, Sarah, you know, she had a point. If if that was my iconic Sarah Haynes impression. (laughs) It's untapped. And it's one of the few places in the superhero genre we haven't really gone. And I think we've seen a lot of the same stories. Well, Regina King in Watchmen, I guess, was close. Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't call her older, middle-aged. I want to see, uh, here I am. I'm like, I want 70 plus, 80 plus, (laughs) (laughs) like the oldest we can get. I want to know what that does to someone's psyche. So if if we're going to keep rebooting things or doing these legacy sequels, then I want to start seeing the women characters and how, where they're at now. 
Yeah, it's 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 relevant to our interests. And speaking of our interests, I have a segment on this podcast called "But How Is It a Queer Narrative." Now, I'm going to do something a little bit different today with this because you are here. Instead of doing But How Is It a Queer Narrative, because we've kind of fleshed that out, I'm going to do some Housewives taglines for the villains of this movie. So I have a few for Catwoman and I have a few for the Penguin. And then if you feel like you have an instinct, I would love to hear what you have in your head. So here we go. I may have nine lives, but I only give one chance. I do what Batman does backwards and in heels. Kitty's got claws. Honey, I've also got a whip. Life's a bitch. Now so am I. That's just a line from the movie. So do you have any more for Catwoman that are coming to you? Because those were sort of B plus, I think. Those are like the Potomac taglines this season. They were B plus. Gosh, I, now, see, I'm just thinking of her lines, my favorite lines in yeah. the movie. I'm thinking of four or five still alive. I love yeah. at the end when she's having that whole whip and she's dying. And, and uh, Six, seven, all good girls go to heaven. Uh, it's so good. And those are choices she's making, people, okay? No one's telling her to read them like that. Those are choices. And how, how about I kiss Santa Claus when she yeah. kisses? And we haven't mentioned, I real quickly, I just also have to mention that Max Shrek, played by Christopher Walken, is also a legendary villain in this movie. And he's so good and so committed to the performance. Again, a weirdo performance. Like, like a weird, the tone. Perfect casting. Yeah. Fucked up. And I, I, it's so crazy to me that it almost gets lost because Penguin and Catwoman are such these big, larger-than-life characters, and he still finds meat to it, which is shocking when you think about it. He still is able to not get completely lost. Well, you know that that, that character was originally supposed to be Harvey Dent, and then there was going to be a two-face transformation, but they were like, this is too much, we'll save it. And so they re- reimagined it as this new character, Max Shrek, but it was originally supposed to be Harvey Dent who becomes Two-Face, who Tommy Lee Jones would later play, but I think they felt it got too crowded. And Billy D. Williams played it in the original Batman and was supposed to turn in, and then they got rid of him, brought in Tommy Lee Jones. I could watch a whole movie about the making of Batman Forever because there was all this Jim Carrey, Tommy Lee Jones stuff that happened behind the scenes, supposedly. Yes, they really didn't like each other. And I I think, didn't you recently ask Drew about that? I did, yeah. I watched your interview with Drew Barrymore. It seemed like she didn't really want to get into it, but definitely there was some truth there. Yeah, she had said, I think, that she had a big crush on Jim Carrey, which I, I think in the 90s, who didn't? I remember he was one of my first crushes. Okay, so now I have some for the penguin. Matt, hit my track. What's grotesque isn't my appearance. It's your behavior. My parents threw me off a bridge into a freezing river. I can survive anything. A penguin may not be able to fly, but I will kill you. Okay, perfect. That's all I have. (laughs) Wait, for him, I'm thinking something good could be... Doesn't he have that famous line about, I'm a heart from hell, or... Uh, come yeah, at you yeah, like a yeah. heart from hell. I feel like heart from hell can be in there somewhere. Yeah. Wow. I mean, honestly, like two, they they would both be amazing on Housewives. Selena Kyle yeah. and Oswald Copplepot. Maybe Oswald Copplepot could be a friend of, but you Selena Kyle that, would be an I- iconic New York housewife, Gotham housewife. <laughs> now that we're talking about this too, I just keep imagining what a different world it would be to have Batman Returns released in theaters today because we'd get one of those insane commercials where yep, it'd be like with Dorit Dorit. Kemsley. Yeah, I was just going to say, <laughs> Dorit in like a tight, like, Kyle, we have to go. The premiere is starting. And they do those now with the suit. They just did a Thor one where it was Kyle and Dorit and they were like, <laughs> 
walking yes, up to did. Thor on a hill or something. And yeah, so the idea of them getting to be sharing the screen with Michelle Pfeiffer as Catwoman, it's too much for me to handle, Matthew. I just came up with a good line for Dorit in the, uh, in the inevitable trailer for this. This costume is so tight. I have to get my carcass out. <laughs> PK. <laughs> PK. Get the Batmobile. <laughs> Find the Batmobile, PK. Find it. PK. Um, <laughs> PK. We love HBO Max. Are you watching White Lotus? Oh my God. I'm obsessed with White Lotus this season. Me too. It's so good. It's really good. The costume budget is also out of control. And I think that's not being discussed enough. Is like the what no. what Theo James, what Megan Faye is wearing, like it's incredible. Megan Fahey is, I think, gonna be like the breakout star of the show. I really do think. Like she she to me gives like movie star on television right now. Like I feel like it's waiting to happen for her. She's really good. She's the one to watch. You heard it here first on the HBO Max Movie Club podcast. You have to stream HBO's via HBO Max White Lotus Season 2. The ratings are way up. They're up 63% from the Season 1 finale. So congrats to Mike White and Co. And congrats to the entire HBO and HBO Max family. I mean, give it up. This actually is my season finale of this podcast, Danny. You're the last episode. Oh, I'm honored. Batman Returns being a Christmas movie. It comes out during Christmas. So do you have any any um, holiday tidings you want to impart on the audience before you go? You know, I just think uh, the times that we live in are tough. So whatever joy you could find in the holidays, make sure you find. And also be sure to give yourself gifts throughout the season. And if you are a parent out there, it can be stressful. I know parenting young kids throughout the holiday season, trying to keep up with getting gifts for teachers and male people and all sorts. Of, it's too much. The holidays are too stressful. Be sure to take a step back. Remind yourself that it's okay don't beat yourself up if you can't make it to this person's holiday party. Or if you don't want to go to the office holiday party, everything will work out in the end and next year will start fresh. But don't beat yourself up for having the perfect season because the most perfect season you can have is an imperfect one. There we go. Give yourself grace. Spoken like a true icon, Denny Pellegrino. If you aren't a fool, you'll stream the podcast, Everything Iconic with Jenny Pellegrino, wherever you get your podcast. You got to get his book, How Do I Unremember This? It was such a fun read and it did so well. Oh my God. That was such an amazing like thing to watch it do so well too, Danny. Thank you. And hopefully next year at this time, we'll have another book to talk about. Oh, baby, look at that. This is how you know he's truly a Housewives watcher. He knows how to hawk a product. I mean, Casa del Sol found it. (laughs) Got to plug the merch. Uh, Danny, thank you so much for joining me for this iconic episode. I love you, Matt. Thank you so much for having me. (laughs) You're the best. All right, y'all, that's it for this damn season of the HBO Max Movie Club. Thanks for tuning in and watching along with us. Enjoy the holiday season and be sure to share your thoughts and favorite moments from the season to at HBO Max Movies on Instagram and Twitter. If you haven't already subscribed, rated, or reviewed HBO Max Movie Club, please do so on the iHeartRadio app, HBO Max, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you might get your podcasts. Thanks for joining the HBO Max Movie Club. The movies we talked about today are currently available on HBO Max. Check the show notes for exact streaming dates. HBO Max Movie Club is a production of HBO Max and iHeartRadio, hosted by me, Matt Rogers. Our executive producer is Matt Stillo. Our producer is Sierra Kaiser. And today's episode was written and researched by Kate Voss. Thanks, everybody.